Carrie K. Taylor, and welcome to the Cash and Carry podcast, the place where expert guests reveal the money wins and mistakes that make us human. Today, I'm joined by Erica Leaney. She's a financial journalist who has written for the Wall Street Journal, Global News, and now she covers personal finance for the Globe and Mail. Her new book is called Money Like You Mean It, Personal Finance Tactics for the Real World, and it's available now. Hey, Erica, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. No, it's been my it's my pleasure. I've been following your work at Global for Eons. So I'm thrilled that you've written a book that brings it all together for us. Thank you. That's uh, that's so nice. I've been following your work uh, as well. So it's uh... <laughs> I'm more of a goof than you are. But the last time we spoke, I was escaping wildfires in British Columbia and I was storing all my stuff in storage lockers. So right now we're under like 10 feet of snow. It's this climate thing is crazy. Yes, I, I remember. I saw, uh, so for a, a bit of background, uh, it, um, Carrie tweeted that uh, uh, she was looking at prices of, of storage lockers and uh, <laughs> it was this crazy summer of fire in BC. And I thought, wow, that's a personal finance story. It's like the personal finance side of climate change. And so we had this chat uh, about, you know, what do you do if, uh, if you're surrounded by fire and you're trying to prepare and make sure, you know, try to limit the financial damage as much as possible. And it was, uh, it was quite the interview. And that's why climate change is, is part of my book, because uh, it's, uh, it's changing everything, including personal finance. Well, I know, I know climate change is a huge interest of yours. So let's go back there in a bit, because I want to start with the title of your book, you called it money like you mean it. And I don't know, sometimes I feel like my money is mean to me. So so why did you hit upon this as your topic? Initially, honestly, I was thinking of writing a book for, for every age. And then I, I figured because I wanted to write a comprehensive book that was kind of like a reference guide, a sort of, you know, your go-to place, play, you know, something to earmark and go back over and over as you face, you know, different big uh, choices in your life financially. I had to narrow it down to an age range. And of course, my own age, my own demographic uh, made the most sense. But this thing that, you know, the personal finance is becoming more complicated. I would say it's true most of all for millennials and, and Gen Z, older Gen Z. But that's mostly because of the housing market, because the crazy housing prices really bring the challenges to a whole other level. But aside from housing, there's so much that's, you know, the personal finance becoming more complex. Well, let's look into housing. It's, it's a hugely emotional topic. It's probably the hottest topic in Canada and in cities across the world. And your beginning chapter is everything starts with housing. So let's look at housing affordability. What are we supposed to do? Where do we start? Yeah, so I called it everything starts with housing because um, I would say that is the challenge for millennials and Gen Z. So the, I would say without question, the biggest financial uh, issue that we face is finding affordable housing. So being able to balance the cost of housing with the cost of the rest of your life. <laughs> that is really where it's at uh, for us. And so that's why like you gotta, that's like, that's a huge decision. There aren't that many financial decisions that can sort of set the course of the rest of your life financially. Housing is one of those. So you gotta get it right. Uh, and yes, it can be extremely emotional. And that's what I, you know, what I try to do. There's no magic wand. <laughs> it's going to be tough. Uh, it's going to be, you know, you're going to have you know, possibly face some difficult decisions, but it's good to 
tackle it, you know, clear headed and, and, and to know what you're doing and have a framework to, to make a good decision. I, I start from, uh, you know, my premise is there is financially nothing wrong with renting. Uh, so I, um, you know, I was born and grew up in Italy and I really had no concept that there was anything wrong with renting until I got to North America and I was like, oh, I guess it's very frowned upon <laughs> for some reason. So I completely, you know, like there's, you don't need to own a house to be a financially functioning adult by, by any means. So how do you decide, you know, you have to decide like whatever works best for you from a lifestyle point of view and from a financial point of view, that is the solution you have to go for. So here's how to decide. So first of all, I would say preliminary thing you have to get out of the way is what is your time horizon? If you aren't stable and you think there's a good chance that you might be, you might move, um, change cities in the next, you know, five years, then don't buy. It, it costs so much. The transaction costs of buying a house and selling a house are so high that it really doesn't make any sense. Um, if you're sort of looking for short-term housing, then it's, you know, it's default rent. Um, if you're sort of looking for a long-term solution, I would say the first thing that you might want to do is um, compare the cost of renting to what I call the unrecoverable costs of owning a home. So we all have this idea that we probably picked up from our parents, you know, at the dinner table, that renting is throwing money out the window, which, which it is, you know, you're giving, you're giving, the rent goes to your landlord and you never see it again. But there's so much money that you're going to throw the out the window as a homeowner too. This is one of the things I learned uh, right away when I bought a house. It costs like houses are money pits. I don't care how new it is. I don't care, <laughs> you know, if it's in perfect shape. Something will break every year. You're going to have to spend money every year for upkeep and repairs. Um, not to mention that you know if you have a mortgage, you're essentially renting money from the bank. You know, that interest rate is certainly not building equity, the, the interest that you pay in your mortgage. Um, you're going to have property taxes. Um, you're going to have home insurance. There are all kinds of costs that you pay as a homeowner that do not build equity. So you want to compare your rent to those costs. And uh, there's a simple, you know, uh, back of the envelope uh, rule in personal finance that you can use. So if you look at, you know, two comparable houses in your area, one is for rent and one is up for sale. If one year's worth of rent is um, less than 5% of the market value of that house, then renting is a good deal. And vice versa, you know, then you're in a sort of homeowner's market instead of a renter's market. So it's really good to have an idea of, you know, what kind of market you're in. So let's say that renting is a, is a good deal. And step two is, you know, it doesn't matter if, you know, even if renting is a good deal, you have to be able to afford the rent. Uh, if you can't save it as a renter, you're going to be in big trouble. You can be a wealthy renter if you can comfortably save and invest. So that's another you know, thing to keep in mind. Um, if you cannot comfortably rent, then you're facing you know, the, the choice is you know, you're going to have to move out and see if you can you know, find something cheaper, maybe a little further afield, um, a different town, a different area, or you're going to have to think about uh, increasing your income uh, somehow. And it's really, it's really a bummer because uh, there are a lot of great jobs that don't pay very much in big cities. <laughs> Uh, I know all about that. Uh, so it's, it is a difficult decision, but, uh, you know, again, this is all about being clear sighted. And I would say, you know, even if, you know, say you're, you're happy with, with renting, you, you've done the math, it's the right thing to do financially. 
Then you run into the other problem uh, that there's a lifestyle issue with renting here in Canada. Not always and not everywhere. I know tons of long-term happy renters, um, especially in Alberta. <laughs> but depending where you are, I mean, I think um, in Toronto for sure, and I'm, I'm, I'm thinking probably Vancouver is the same. It's really tough. Like if you want to have a family and you're going to need a bigger house, it's very difficult to find rentals big enough for families. Uh, so much of the rental market was built with investors, real estate investors in mind and not tenants. And so we have all these tiny shoebox apartments that are affordable for your mom and pop real estate investors, but they have no, no storage space, you know, no sound insulation. And they have the microwave and the marble countertops. And that's going to be great if you're single. <laughs> but the moment you start to, you know, want something more, it can be really difficult to find something that's going to work for you and to find the stability, for example, like find a landlord that will want to uh, sign you up for, for a lease that's more than a year. So there's, um, you know, set aside the math and see if you can find a rental solution that works for you. Yeah, I've, I was lucky or unlucky enough to live in both Vancouver and Toronto, just as housing prices went bonkers. And I have to say, like, just watching the ladder get pulled up in front of you, it's so heartbreaking because you there's no way to save enough money to keep up with that. So yeah, we rented when we were in those cities. And I have to say, when um, I became a parent, it became really hard to live in one of those shoebox apartments because it, it's really advantageous to have a room where you can close the door and put your kid in there at night so you're all not stuck in the same room. So real estate is just, it's so, so difficult. So I, I cannot agree with you more. But you also touched upon investing. So whether we're renting or we're homeowners, you say that learning about investing is not optional. So what are my options? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's funny because <laughs> I started writing this book uh, right before the pandemic and then so much changed as I was writing and investing is one of those so I had this whole chapter planned out where I was going to argue that you know so many people are afraid of investing and investing has traditionally been been treated as the you know the personal finance 2.0 that like the advanced stage for for experts you know like uh you know budgeting is the the basics and then you know if you really want to get into it then you learn to invest and i was gonna and i do uh, still uh, argue against that uh, mindset in in my book saying you know like if you don't have a, a generous employer pension which you know unless you work in government you probably don't then you mm -hmm. absolutely need to know how to invest because otherwise chances are you're not going to have enough money in retirement. But as I was writing, uh, you know, then we had the crazy uh, pandemic uh, st stock market, you know, the bull market and everyone, especially millennials and older Gen Z uh, started uh, getting into the stock market. And instead of having all these people afraid of investing, it started it was kind of seeing the opposite problem of people getting super confident about their investing <laughs> skills and, you know, bragging about having all their money in a single stock and stuff like that. And so basically what I want, I, I had to kind of uh, rewrite the chapter midway through to say, you know, even if you, you made a lot of money through the pandemic and you feel like uh, you got a handle on this, you have to know the basics. Uh, learning about investing is not optional, whether you're afraid of investing or whether you feel super confident about investing, take a step back and make sure that you learn the basics. And by basics, I mean, 
you know, you really don't need to know anything very exotic. Um, just have a clear understanding of what is risk when you're putting money in the financial market and how do you manage it, which is really um, sort of what I go over uh, in, the, in the chapter. It's really about looking at risk versus fear versus greed for, versus, well, what are some of the investments that, you know, people can get into? I mean, when you look at risk and fear and greed, it's like, okay, well, how do you make that balance if you're just starting out? Yeah, so I talk about, you know, how to how to manage risk, right? There, there are, you know, different different things to think about. One of them obviously is, you know, diversification is one way to manage risk. So you're putting your money in many different baskets. So making sure that you're spread out across many companies and many industries um, in many countries um, even so that you know if something happens <laughs> something goes down then you're going to have something that goes up and, you know and uh, you know that's that's one way of, of managing um, your risk uh, and then a very easy way so my, my approach to investing is to you know keep it simple low maintenance uh, and low cost and so uh, three simple ways um, to do that sort of low, low cost, low effort investing, uh, three options, uh, it's solid option in Canada. And it's all about index investing, three ways of getting into index investing, which just means sort of uh, following the ups and downs of a broad stock market index. Um, you got index mutual funds, all in one uh, ETFs or asset allocation ETFs uh, and robo advisors. Those are three very valid options. They have some small pros and cons. It might work, you know, one might work uh, better than the other for your particular situation, but they're all three um, solid options. And that's what I discussed in the chapter. No, it's great. I, I really enjoyed that chapter. And another thing I, I was really excited to see is that you have a whole section on making money. You know, most personal finance books don't go into that direction, but over the pandemic, we've seen People aren't shy to, to quit their jobs. It's, it's called the great resignation. And at first I laughed, but then I found this is really true. Um, one of my most popular posts on my blog is how to write a resignation letter. And that post gets crazy traffic every Thursday night and, and every Sunday morning. So I think those are the times where people sit back, reflect and rethink and reevaluate their, their life's decisions and their career options. So I don't know, are people rethinking their choices um, that you're seeing? And is this a good time to, to career jump to find something better? Yeah, so the great resignation. So speaking sort of, I used to be an economics reporter. So I guess uh, speaking a little bit as, a, as an economics reporter, we last time I checked, which was before the holidays, there wasn't a ton of evidence that we are seeing sort of a, a great resignation here in Canada to the extent that it's happening in the US. Anecdotally, I have to say, I am seeing it just in, in my circle, lots of people changing jobs. But yeah, in aggregate, not, not so much. But uh, I have to say, I mean, there's two things happening. Um, we have a very tight uh, labor market, all kinds of labor shortages. So since I've been in the labor force and I started smack in the middle of the financial crisis, this has been by far the best labor market that I've ever seen, uh, where workers in so many industries have more bargaining power than they've had in decades. 
The other thing that could spur people to, to change jobs is um, inflation, right? Like in, inflation is, uh, is, is moving fast. It's, uh, it's really high. We haven't seen it. We haven't, I have no memory of inflation uh, this high uh, personally, uh, you know, and um, so, so living costs are, are really like, I can see it. Everyone's seeing it. Like they're your grocery bill is, uh, is concerning. <laughs> And uh, switching jobs in many industries is unfortunately the only way in which you're going to get a significant raise. Um, and so even if, you know, again, we don't have a ton of um, aggregate evidence that Canadians are, um, you know, sending in resignation letters in uh, mass, I, I wonder whether that's going to happen. I wonder whether a lot of people will be quitting and switching jobs uh, just to take advantage of this great labor market and, and to keep ahead of inflation. Yeah, I'm seeing, I'm actually seeing a lot of move it, movement in the high tech market. I come from a computer science background and all my friends are just job leaping just so they can, they can, I guess, reset their income level. Because if you've been with a job five or so years, you're kind of locked into just an inflationary raise. And those raises aren't reflecting actual inflation, right? They're like 2%. So they're not hitting like the four, the 5% that we're actually seeing. So I'm seeing like there's movement in that sector. So I'm, I'm going to ask you, okay, so if people are moving around or they're thinking of moving around, how do we make sure that we're getting a salary or that we're getting paid what we're worth? Yeah, so that's super important, negotiating your salary. And uh, um, yeah, job hopping is the whole idea is that when you're switching employers, you have more bargaining power than you normally would as an existing employees. You know, you've just, you've, you've gone through what could have, you know, probably wasn't a grueling interview process. You've been selected. You're, you're number one. You're the, the, the person that they want. And now you get to ask, right? And so it's really, really important. And, uh, you know, every time I talk about negotiating your pay, everyone assumes that I'm super comfortable with it. I am absolutely not. I am awkward. I am shy. <laughs> it's not something I, I like to to do, but I've learned how important it is. So just, you know, psych yourself up and you, you got to do it. And to do it right, you have to prepare. So how do you prepare? So yeah, uh, yeah you have to figure out like what is, um, and you may get a pay range, but you might not. Um, so you have to you have to figure out like what is a what is a good compensation for the role. What is the competitive compensation for the role that um, you know that you're you're getting? The best way to do that is to do your own on the ground intelligence. Uh, you know, gather your own on the ground intelligence. So see if you know you have colleagues or former colleagues um, who have had that role that you're applying for, or maybe maybe manage that role. So they would know what the compensation is and just, just ask them if it's not their job, sort of ask them what's, what's the right compensation. If it is their job, you don't want to ask them. So how much are you making? Uh, but a, a much better question to ask that's not quite so forward um, is, you know, you play what um, this HR expert that I interviewed for the book, Alison Benditti, she calls it the over-under game. So just pick a number that you think is, you know, it's probably right and say, hey, are you making more or less than X amount? And you'd be surprised. She, she tells me, Benditti was telling me, like, um, especially women are constantly surprised. Like they're constantly undervaluing themselves. And so the over-under game, if you do it, you know, especially with a few people, you're going to get a pretty good range and make sure if you're a woman, make sure you ask men with <laughs> um, what they're, you know, whether they're making more or less than X amount, that could help you make sure that you're not sort of shooting yourself in the foot by asking for something that's too low. 
once you have a pretty good idea of the range, um, it's really important that you come up with an anchor value. So ideally you get to go first. You don't always do. Employers like to go first and they will lowball you. So what do you do then? You do not want to go, like say you have you know, a certain amount uh, in mind, say, I don't know, uh, 75,000. You absolutely do not want to ask for 75,000. You want to ask for quite a bit more. So let's say you're going to ask for 85,000. That gives you a little bit of room to negotiate and make concessions and still hit that target um, that you have in mind. And once you've agreed on base salary, remember that even if you don't, you know, especially if you don't get like probably not in this market, but in a tighter market, in a market where we have higher unemployment and in a more difficult market, you might not get exactly what you want. But remember, there's so much more you can ask for than just your base salary. There's, you know, cash bonuses, stock options, uh, there's flexible work arrangements, super important, especially if you have kids, you can ask to have a predictable schedule or, you know, at least know your schedule, um, maybe a week in advance, you can ask remote work is super important right now. Um, you can even ask, and I didn't know this, I learned this while I was writing the book, that you can ask uh, for the waiting period for health and uh, retirement benefits um, to be waived. Sometimes employers are willing to do that, which I was like, you got to be kidding, because I hate those waiting periods. <laughs> I wish I'd known that sooner. And sometimes, especially if you're moving, say, maybe from a government job where you have a really cushy pension to a private sector job that may be more competitive when it comes to pay, but less competitive when it comes to retirement benefits, you can ask, inquire about having a retirement payout. So basically a lump sum that's meant to kind of make up for the fact that you're moving for from a more generous or less generous um, pension program. Or it's, it's almost completely opposite to what I learned. I always learned that the person who mentions money first loses. So, uh, you know, but I guess the behavioral science behind it is showing that this anchor premise is where can really mess you up when it comes to getting what you're worth right out of the gate. Yeah, this is all based, it's based on, yeah, so behavioral research um, and um, yeah, I would like uh, negotiating, like negotiating anything. Um, it's not just pay, like whoever goes first, like the first things that, um, you know, the first value or proposition that comes out in, in talks is generally like the anchor, like what we we try to, you know, our brain uh, focuses on, and uh, if it's low, it tends to anchor <laughs> things down, right? And that's right. why you want to go high. Like if your employer is going low, like make sure you go high so you can meet somewhere in the middle. Um, if you start out with what you want, you're going to end up with less than you want. Yeah. I mean, I've made mistakes in negotiating my pay when I was working in high tech. And now that I'm a gig or freelance uh, employee type, I have to renegotiate my paycheck every single time. And I have to say it's really exhausting because it's, it's nonstop. But one thing I learned really early on when I was in tech is that it really helps to have, I guess, an ally that works on the same team as you. This happened to me. So I learned um, that I was being terribly underpaid, like close to 20,000. And one of my team members who had the same education, the same background, the same skill level, he knew I was being underpaid. So when he left a job hunt to uh, job hop to another position, he left his a note on my desk what his salary was, and it was like oh, I couldn't believe it. But that was like the biggest help to me because then I realized I wasn't just being paid ten or fifteen percent under; it was significant. 
So I was pretty angry and I went into HR and I'm like, you're underpaying me and they wouldn't budge. So I said, see ya, I'm off. Yeah. You know, I, I know what this job is worth. And it was great because he actually hired me in the job that he moved to. So, you know, I had another ally there and I was paid equally, but to so many women, this, we don't know, right? Cause job salaries aren't posted. They're not public. I mean, I can use Glassdoor to try and help. So you can get kind of a, a baseline, but it's just such a, a dark magic sort of thing to, to tease through and, and figure out. But I love the over-under game because I think that's a really a less abrasive and easier way to get to people to figure out, you know, where exactly I can be when I ask. Yeah, for sure. And I would say it's super important to have an Ali and I've had uh, similar experiences and also it's very important to be an ally right like even as a woman uh, we know that racialized women people with disabilities are underpaid even more uh, so just be be open uh, share uh, so that you know we can all get the the pay that we deserve so uh, I love the chapter in your book about the retirement myth because I feel this so hard you know when I was growing up, the, the story on the advertisements was Freedom 55, right? And it's all these really youngish people traveling. They look amazing. They're dressed amazing. But that's really a myth now. I, I don't see this happening to anyone in, in any of our demographics. So what are your thoughts on, on why retirement is such a myth now? Yeah, my goodness. I mean, I was thinking even Freedom 65 was a myth, like 55. <laughs> that's that's what the ads were when I was growing up it was all freedom 55 and I'm like wow that's not gonna happen for us (laughs) no it's also a perfect world (laughs) I have to say it's not happening for a lot of boomers either no. Uh, so yeah no uh, I would say retirement is this idea of retirement is a bit of a myth not because you you don't want to, you know, you, you know, saving so that you are able at some point to stop working if you want to stop working or at least significantly reduce workload, um, you know, step off the, the hamster wheel. Um, that's super important. But this idea that, you know, we're going to go from um, working all the time to, you know, aquafit classes and or fishing or whatever it is, that's right. kind of really disappearing. It's not just a matter of that fewer and fewer people are actually able to retire at 65. They have to work longer, um, you know, just to be able to have the savings that they need. It's also mm-hmm. that a lot of people don't want to retire completely. Um, like there's a lot of people who like their jobs and would like to simply take it a little easier, you know, have a little more time, have, and, and, and change the way they work from, you know, working to pay the bills to working to do something that you enjoy. That is really what retirement is becoming, that this switch from, I no longer need to work, I want to work. Um, and so the whole idea of retirement is becoming much more, more of a gradual shift uh, than sort of a black and white thing. Uh, and there's really nothing wrong if you if you like your 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 job and you like working to just keep working beyond 65 uh, is really is not it's not a failure to to not be able to retire um, by 65 and and honestly if you look at the statistics and you look at history retirement has been of a bit of a myth forever not not just for for our generations um, 
the idea that you know you had a job and you had this this great pension and then you'd get a the gold watch and retire at 65 that was really mostly true for men um even if you go back in you know to the, the 50s and 60s like a lot of women were in the workforce and they had all these precarious part-time jobs that didn't have pensions so it's always been a bit of a, a myth <laughs> so okay so for if we're starting out or if we're in the middle of it, or if we just want to get started today, because today is always a fresh start, how would you say we, we start to save? I know you've, you've incorporated some behavioral science in there as well to help get past the human nature of do-nothingness. So where do we start using the science that can help us? Yeah, and so I want to be very clear. So I would kind of let go the idea that you're going to retire at 65, especially because so many of us like are staying in school longer. We have we're much more likely to have employment gaps. Um, you know, it's gonna take a little longer than, uh, you know, 65 maybe to, to get to the point where you can, you know, pull back, but it's super important to, to save up, to be able to, you know, to have that financial freedom to stop working because you have to pay the bills. That really mm -hmm. is the, uh, the goal, the financial freedom. Um, and so you got to start like the sooner you start, the better. And that's the, you know, probably lots of people are familiar with this, the importance of, of compound interest, um, you know, the money, the interest, uh, earning interest on interest, uh, the longer your, your time frame for saving for retirement. Time is really what supercharges uh, compound interest. So the sooner you start, the better. How much to save for retirement is really a bit of a difficult question. Uh, if you're just starting out and you have no idea what your income is going to be, you have no idea what you want in mm -hmm. retirement. Um, so it's really super important. Just, just focus on establishing the habit of saving for retirement. Um, look at your budget, uh, see you know, what looks doable. And even if it's like 50 bucks a month initially, just, just put it away. And then every year sort of reassess how much you're saving uh, based on your, your salary, your income, if you got a raise, then, you know, uh, give yourself uh, a raise in terms of your retirement savings uh, as well. Um, and, you know, if inflation went up, try to keep up with inflation. And that's how you start, um, you know, early on. And then as you get a little bit closer to retirement and, you know, you have an idea of maybe what your income trajectory is going to be and, you know, what you want to do in retirement, what kind of lifestyle you want to have and what your needs are going to be financially, then, then you can get into some of the more complicated math of trying to figure out what you need and you know, what you need to save up to get there. Um, I always look at if people get a bonus or they get an inflationary raise. I was always thinking, well, maybe just put the bonus in your RSP or your tax-free savings account or take that inflationary raise if it's not cutting too much into your cost of living and let it go in because then you're not feeling the pinch as hard. So that's always something I get my husband to do. He's a little grumpy about it, but because he's got like a full-time job at you know, it's just, it's something that works as well if, if you're in that kind of a, a job situation. Yes, that works very well if you have a steady job. Yeah, I don't. So <laughs> I can't do that. There's nothing steady about my work. So I'm like, I'm like a lot of gig or freelance people out there. We're growing numbers. So, so guys, if you're out there, I, I get it. Since we just brought up sort of um, freelancing and gig work, uh, that is something that I that I talk about in the book. So maybe, yeah, I mean, I'd love to to chat about that, because as you said, 
I, I wanted to tackle the income part of the equation because it's such a challenge um, for, for young people and it's super important. I mean, yeah, like personal finance, it's not just about penny pinching and investing. It's, it's all about, you know, it's also about making sure that you make enough, enough money and, um, you know, how do you do that? You know, it's no longer like just get a job and start saving. It's like, well, do you get a steady job? Are you better off freelancing and being your own boss? Uh, should you have a side hustle? And, you know, I, I wanted to have a whole discussion about side hustles because there's, they're so mythologized, especially yeah. online. And I'm really against working all the time. <laughs> um, and so I wanted to sort of provide a, a framework uh, for people to, to try to evaluate whether having a side hassle is, a, is, is, is worth the hassle uh, or not. Yeah. <laughs> the side hassle. <laughs> Should I hustle with the side hassle? <laughs> and uh, yeah, I because uh, I've been a freelancer and I've had a lot of steady jobs and I have to say, I would so love to be able to be a freelancer, but I constitutionally can't. I'm just one of those people who need the structure. I am not a good boss of myself. <laughs> Neither am I. I am the worst boss ever. <laughs> she doesn't give me a break. She won't let me go up for holidays. She makes me sit in my basement. You know, worst boss ever. But there's advantages too. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's, there's, yeah, there's a lot of advantages. <laughs> Um, so who should, who should do a side hassle and who shouldn't? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So a side hassle, I mean, you can have a side hassle, if you, even if you have a, a full-time job. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, there's this whole idea, you know, especially because millennials, like, because we need so much income uh, just to make ends meet and buy a house. Right. There's this whole idea of like, oh, it's just going to work super hard and, you know, we're going to be tough, but you burn out really quickly. Uh, and also mm -hmm. being burned out is not not good like you may miss like if you're working all the time and you don't have time to stop and think about what you're doing and where you want to go with your life um you, you may not even you may miss opportunities you, you kind of get tunnel vision when you're working all the time uh so when should you get a side hassle so my basic uh my perspective is if you're working to more than one job all the time then that's not that's not good uh, that's just that, that just means you need to get a better job period like focus on the one job and get something that pays better but site hassles can be good and I would say they're good in three you know three instances one is if you have something that you really like doing and you can monetize it and you know it's it's a hobby it relaxes you it gives you something else to do you you use a different part of your brain and you can make money on it absolutely you know that's that's great just make sure that it doesn't become a second job like even if you're baking if you find yourself you know 10 p.m at night you know enough you know frenzy of flour and eggs that's that sounds probably... like fun <laughs> if i'd like becomes... to be in a frenzy of of flour and eggs that sounds like great <laughs> if it becomes stressful you know like watch out Another thing, like side hustles can be like a good short term uh, sort of way to boost your income. So say like you really want that vacation and then maybe, you know, temporarily you you pick up a side gig just to get you there. Or maybe you're saving for a down payment for a house. And then, you know, maybe for a few years you have a side hassle just to help you save faster. You have a specific goal and specific end date. That's that's fine. 
Um, and side hustles can be a great way to transition to a different career without sort of incurring, it's a, it's a low risk and low cost way of transitioning to a different career. It's kind of like you start doing it, uh, you know, you start exploring a different field uh, with a side hustle. And then if you like it, you know, gradually you build contacts, maybe you build clients. And then, you know, you're, when you're finally ready to, to make the big jump, you kind of like, you already know your, the job very well. You don't need, you don't have a huge learning curve. You don't have to stay, you know, your income never dips. I know a lot of people who have used side hassles to gradually transition to a completely different field that they liked better. Um, and yeah, and basically, in, you know, they, they, they boosted their income and they never needed to take a break and go to school. Yeah, those are three, three things I think that, you know, site hassles work really well for. I definitely fit in group three. I mean, I was a software developer and I started the blog and it was mostly just to educate my colleagues how, how to better invest their money for retirement. Because I saw all these guys buying cars and I was riding my bicycle to work and, and brown bagging my lunch and they were just spending all this money. So it should have tipped me off that they were making a lot more than me, but I started the blog, I know, right? But I started the blog to, to try and get them to invest uh, more of that money for the future. And it took off. I couldn't believe it, but I was doing it anonymously. So I didn't want uh, my employer to know I was explaining how to maximize our retirement plan, but it took off and it was, it was a lot of fun. And I was just writing articles for my colleagues. And next thing I knew, we put it on a blog and then it went crazy. So that can happen, whether you've got like a, a social channel, or if you do run a website, it, it's bizarre how things can just take off. And I, I really found it hard at first because here's my voice out there and it's really intimidating to put an opinion or as you know, to, to put yourself out there. But when you do some, some really magical things can happen. So if you're that person listening right now and you think, oh, I have this idea, go with, go with Erica's number three option and, and get your toes in the water, get your feet in the water and see how that works for you because Taking a chance when you've still got income in the background, as you say, it's it's not a huge risk and it could be high return. Definitely. Yeah. And it's also sometimes you have a fantasy that you really like, you know, a certain job. Like I wanted to be a foreign correspondent. I never thought I'd be writing about money. And then I actually tried it out. I was like, I so do not like this. I am not cut out for it. <laughs> But you're great at it. You're like one of Canada's I mean, top financial writers. <laughs> journalism, absolutely. I always wanted to be a journalist. I just didn't know what kind of journalist I wanted to be. Right. And I was shocked, shocked for my entire you know life growing up. I wanted to be a foreign correspondent. And when I actually tried it out for real, I was like, uh-uh. <laughs> okay, so Erica, where can we find you? Uh, yeah, so you can uh, find me at uh, the Globe and Mail and on Twitter. Uh, I'm at uh, at e. Alini. So if you, you know, if you have things that you want to bring to my attention, things that you think I should cover in terms of personal finance, or you want to tip me off about something, uh, feel free to get in touch uh, both through my email at the Globe or uh, Twitter. Uh, my DMs uh, are um, open, and if you're interested in uh, buying my book. It's available everywhere you buy books, uh, obviously, you know, Amazon and Chapters Indigo, but it really is in a ton of um, small independent bookstores. So yeah, check it out. It might be on the shelf at the you know, store right around the corner. Amazing. 
So money like you mean it, personal finance tactics for the real world. It really is a definitive source for everything money. The author is Erica Alini, and the book is on sale now, everywhere. And if you want to check out Erica's amazing work covering personal finance, head on over to the Globe and Mail and check out her Twitter account, Ialini. That's at E-A-L-I-N-I. And I have to say, she's a lot of fun. She's a great follow. And if you have a story to share with her, she's on it. Anything from climate change to the retirement myth, she's there. So Erica, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate having you. Thank you so much for having me. Wasn't Erica amazing? I really appreciate her detailed work and incredible experience. So I'm curious, what out of today's conversation resonated most for you? Leave a comment below and let us know. And as always, we've got some amazing conversations happening over at scoffbox.com. So head over there and leave a comment for us right now. And if you're not already subscribed to our email list, I don't know what you're thinking. You'll get access to our free budget bundle to help you get a fresh start with your money. Thank you so much for tuning in and I'll catch you next time.